This morning's scripture reading will be taken from John chapter 10, verses 7, 8, and 9. John 10, 7 through 9. In your pew Bibles, this will be found on page 950. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the, sheep, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Good morning. It is good to be together to worship God. If you're a guest with us, again, we welcome you. We thank you for coming. It's an encouragement to us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you also. It's good to be back home. We've had a wonderful trip to El Salvador, and we bring you greetings and also great gratitude from the brothers and sisters there and the various congregations of which we support. When we go down on these mission trips, we work with all six of the uh, preachers that we support uh, all year there. And they continually come up and tell us how they pray for us as a congregation and how grateful they are. And they ask us to pass that on to you. And so we're thankful to be able to do that. It's a great trip. You'll hear a lot more about it later. There were seven baptisms. There were two restorations. Uh, and those restorations came from another area that we worked in, that we had worked in in previous years. But a lot of our work this year was done in a secluded community that was on a beautiful, huge lake. And it was a little fishing uh, community. And uh, today at four o'clock will be the first Sunday that the Church of Christ has ever met in that little community. And uh, there'll be a few souls that gather together that have just become Christians this past week. And uh, I want to encourage you uh, today and this afternoon to be praying for them. Uh, that their first gathering would be a great encouragement to those young Christians and uh, even to that community as uh, hopefully and prayerfully uh, that the Lord's church will be meeting in that community until uh, Jesus comes again. You'll hear a lot more about that in the future. It truly was a great trip, but we do need to at least say to you this morning, uh, for all of you that supported, for all of you that prayed, uh, to the eldership, uh, to everybody as a congregation that has a heart that says, let's send out people that want to take the gospel. We say thank you. And to each one of you that were able to go this year, uh, we say thank you for your involvement and your willingness to go. What a blessing it was. Frank Stockton in 1882 wrote a short story that was published in a magazine and it was a very uh, well-written piece of work, but that probably is not the only reason that it is still read in many colleges today. You see, the reason that it's continually read today is probably because of the ending. The story sounds almost like a fairy tale in some types of ways, except it doesn't end that way. It doesn't end with the happily ever after. Instead, it is written much more whimsical, but it ends in a very open-ended way, of course, on purpose. His desire was to make the reader think and reason, how would I have ended this story? Now, because of that, it's disappointing to some because he does such a beautiful job of writing it. You get to the end and you're like, that's not how I wanted it to end. I wanted him to tell me how it was going to end. It's made up primarily of three characters. 
an almost barbaric type king who, who had great pleasure in building his arena and having a very unusual way that he would entertain his citizens by the way that he would punish criminals. It's also made up of the beautiful young princess, his daughter, and it is made up of a romantic story. She falls in love with a commoner. And you see, that was against the law. She knew that, so she kept it a secret. But eventually, after a good while, the king found out about this illegal affair. And so he did what he did to all of his criminals. He arrested him and he brought him in. And you see what the, all the criminals had to do was they had to choose between two doors. Behind one door would be a beautiful lady, a maiden. And if he happened to choose that door because the criminal would not know who was behind each door, the lady would come out and they were married right there at that moment. And they were supposed to live happily ever after. But if he chose the other door, there was a hungry tiger behind that door. And of course, that would be one of the last decisions that criminal would ever make. So it was time for him to enter in for his sentencing. And he believed that the love of the princess was genuine. And so he knew because she was the daughter of the king, she could have found out who was behind each door. And she had. And so as he walked into the arena, his eyes searched until he found the princess. And then he watched for her signal. And as the king declared now he must choose and go open a door, she gave him the signal to go to the right-hand door. Now I need to let you know this. Not only did she know who was behind each door, she even knew who individually was behind each door. It wasn't just any tiger. He made sure that he found the most ferocious and hungry tiger that he could find in all of the land. And it wasn't just any woman. He made sure that he found, the king found the most beautiful woman in all of the land. And he had, even more pretty than the princess. As a matter of fact, the princess knew her because for months and months she despised her. She knew that this beautiful lady had eyes for her man and had even flirted with him on numerous occasions. You see, before all this had happened, she had grown to despise this woman. And now she knew that she was behind the other door. It was almost more than she could bear to think that the man that she loved would live for the rest of his life with this woman. It was also almost more than she could bear to think that the man that she loved would be eaten by a ferocious tiger right in front of her eyes based on her decision. And so she nodded for him to go to the right-hand door. And he did. He reached for the door that was on the right side. And the story ends. You, the reader, has to decide which door did she choose for him. What would be the result once the door was open? 
Isn't it interesting about how much of our life we can bring down to passages and passageways? How often in life have you opened one door of opportunity or have you closed another door of opportunity? How many times has there been wonderful opportunities and you never even saw that door? How many times has it been for you to make a decision and you have from the genuineness of your heart said, if I could just know what the future was, I would choose the right door. But right now it's so complex and it's so complicated. I don't know if I should do this or if I should do this. Perhaps all of us have been there when it comes to to our family, when it comes to making decisions about work, when it comes to making decisions about career, when it comes to making decisions about do I go to college or do I go in the military? Do I take this class or do I take this course of study? Do I continue dating this person or, or is there someone else? And on and on throughout life, how many times would we say, if I could just first open the door and look all the way down into the future, then it would be so easy for me to make my decisions. This morning, I want you to think about the only door that is the right door, that is a passageway, that is guaranteed a beautiful, amazing, blessed future. If you pass on this door, you will have passed on everything that matters. The Lord does not want us to go blindly through life. The most important decision that there is for us to make and think, I just, I don't know where that passageway is. I don't know where that door is. I just wish some way I I could know. I know I want to serve God. I know that I want to spend an eternity with God. I just can't find the way to God. Perhaps this morning you're sitting there thinking, well, that's a given. Brethren, it's not. America, Mount Juliet as a town, is full of individuals that want a relationship with God and they honestly do not know that Jesus is the way to the Father. America is becoming more and more full of a population who absolutely does not know that Jesus is the way to the Father. Our world for ages has been filled with a population of people that do not know that Jesus is the way to the Father. And so when Jesus makes this statement in John the 10th chapter, the passage that has been capably read just a few moments ago, I'd like for you to look again there at verse 7. Where he says, then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door. Now, how did he begin that? Most assuredly. Let me tell you something that there is no doubt about this in its truth. There may be doubt in your mind, but there's not doubt in the fact of whether or not it's true. Keep in mind, you and I believing something doesn't make it true. You and I believing something doesn't make it wrong. Truth is absolute. And so here he speaks on the realm of truth. Most assuredly, it is this way. Jesus says, I am the door. Now, pause with me for just a moment. And I want you to imagine you've never heard of that description before. And I want you to just think how odd this would be. Just wipe from your mind you've ever heard that, that Jesus is the door. And let's think about Jesus this morning. The Prince of Peace. 
the good shepherd, the mediator between God and man, the Messiah, the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, the door. Wait a minute. It's like Sesame Street. One of these things doesn't belong here. What? How, where did that come from? You have all of these, these beautiful, even glorious and majestic terms scattered all throughout the Bible that describe Jesus. And then we get to one like this where he says, I am the door. Really? You're going to call Jesus son of God, God on earth, the door? Oh, not only us, that's what he calls himself. He says, I want you to understand something. Most assuredly, there's no doubt about this. I am the door. What are we to gain from this? You know from studying the Bible, if you want to gain the most, you always put a passage in the context of which it's written. And if you want to glean truth from it, you always have to put it in the context that it was written. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice that the first five verses of John the 10th chapter is a story. And as a matter of fact, in verse six, he tells why he told this story. He said that it was an illustration you see there in verse six, Jesus used this illustration. And by the way, that's not the same Greek word for parable. It's not a parable. He's just throwing out an illustration. Well, what was the illustration? He threw out the illustration of, of a sheepfold. And the people of that day would have probably understood the physical illustration very well. Now, what they didn't understand was how it applied spiritually. But the physical illustration, we might not understand so well today. They would have been very common uh, in their culture to have shepherds just filling their society and filling their, their communities. They would have looked on the outskirts of their villages and they would have seen shepherds on the hill. But at night, they would always bring their sheep back in to a place of safety. And usually there would be some kind of stone or, or some kind of walls built up around and there would only be one door. And the shepherd, sometimes several shepherds would bring their sheep into one place and then they would perhaps take turns or they would hire someone to literally sleep in the door. That way, if, if a wolf or some kind of predator wanted to come in and harm the sheep, they would have to pass through the shepherd and the shepherd loves the sheep too much to let that happen. But then there would be others that would want to climb over the walls and, and history says oftentimes they would slit the throat of the sheep so that it would make no noise and then they would quietly take it over the wall as it was dead, life is gone, the sheep is stolen and Jesus says, now those were the thieves and the robbers. Sheep come in through the door. The shepherd was always there taking care of the door. And if someone wanted to hurt the sheep, they would not pass through the door. Now, Jesus lays that out in a very beautiful way. And then he says, most assuredly, I am the door. Notice there's only one sheepfold. You want to be a part of that sheepfold, you're going to have to pass through the door. But let's ask again, why? So Jesus said, I am the door because he used an illustration of a sheepfold only having one door. But why did he use the illustration of the sheepfold? The 10th chapter being a break at the point that it is, is very untimely. There is no change of setting or circumstance or anything from the 9th chapter to the 10th chapter. 
The 10th chapter is taught as a result of what happened in the 9th chapter. If you have your Bibles open, you want to just glance at some things. We're just going to mention this part very quickly. In the ninth chapter, you see in the first few verses that there was a blind man. He was born blind and he laid in the same place each day on the streets and he begged in order to survive. And so Jesus' disciples walked by and they asked the age old question. Why is this man suffering like this? Why is he blind? Has he sinned or did his parents sin that he was born in this condition? Remember Job? Remember when he lost everything? His friends came along and said, you must have done some horrible sin. You see, the, the dealing righteously and wisely with pain and suffering has always been difficult for us to do. We want to blame too much on things that it has nothing to do with. And so Jesus says, it's neither one. That man's not blind because of the man or his, his uh, parents. But he says, I'm going to use this as an opportunity for the glory and the power of God to be seen. And so he spits in the clay and, and puts it in the, the man's eyes and he tells him to go to the pool of Sloam and wash and the man does and he begins to see and now he's walking around seeing. Can you imagine that? If you've been blind all your life and you could see for the first time, what would you want to see? What did he glance at first? We don't know, but we do know it's almost comical. The one standing around said, doesn't that look like the guy that used to see? Doesn't that look like? And finally he says to him, I'm he. And so their next question is, how do you see? It's a man named Jesus. Now you see, this presented a problem to the Pharisees because this healing took place on the Sabbath. Jesus did not violate the Sabbath. He only violated their tradition of the Sabbath. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Jesus was perfect. As a matter of fact, he kept the big laws and he kept everything down to the little bitty laws. As a matter of fact, he says, I dotted my I's and I crossed my T's saying that he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. And so he had done nothing wrong, but yet the Pharisees very much accused him of wrong. They questioned him and they could not get him to deny Jesus. And so what they did then was that they turned to the parents and they said, we have two questions for you. Is this the man that was blind and now that he sees? Is this your son? Is that him? And question number two, how is it that he sees now? They were quick to answer question number one. Yes, this is our son. He was blind and now he sees. But they would not answer question number two. They said he's of age. He's a man. You go and you ask him how he can now see. Now, lest you think, well, maybe they didn't know how he came about his sight. Oh, they did know. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 22 there. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. You see, the Pharisees, they believed that the kingdom belonged more to them than it did to Christ. They believed they were the ones that controlled who entered and who did not enter into the kingdom. And so not only had they come up with many traditions that was not within the will of God, when the Messiah himself was standing in front of them, they would not confess that he was the Messiah and even made a law that said, you're not going to be a part of our religion anymore if you even confess that you believe in Christ. And so the parents didn't want to lose their religion. And so they would not have anything to do with Jesus, even though he had done what no man could do, proving that he was of God. 
Now, they continue to have discussion with this man going deeper into the ninth chapter. And finally, what I'd like for you to see there is in verse 34. They answered and they said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? Here it is. And they cast him out. Jesus watched this. He watched the Pharisees think that they were controlling the kingdom of heaven. We're not going to let you in. We don't care that you see and that it was done by Jesus Christ. You won't deny Jesus Christ. You can't have entrance into the kingdom. And so then Jesus approaches the man to make sure that this man knows that it was the power of God. And this man declares himself a believer. And then in the last few verses, Jesus uses some language that confuses even many today. He says that if you were blind, Jesus can make you see. But if you believe that you already see, you are in fact with your sight, the fact that you think you see, you're blind. In other words, how arrogant are you? How self-sufficient are you? How many here this morning are willing to say, without Jesus Christ, I see nothing? Without Jesus Christ, I'm totally blind in life. The only way I can see, the only way I can see the Father one day is through Jesus. And he closes that to then turn and give an illustration. And you can imagine that probably this man and his parents were still there. Those Pharisees that thought they controlled the entrance into the kingdom were probably still there. And what does he do? He begins that story by saying, let me talk to you about entering into the sheepfold. And then after he tells that illustration, he says in verse seven, assuredly I say to you, I am the door. In other words, he was saying to the Pharisees, you do not control the doorway into the kingdom of heaven. He was saying to the blind man's parents, you need to be careful which door you think is going to lead to heaven because right now you're walking through the wrong door. He is affirming the blind man who is now a seeing man, not only physically, but spiritually. He's affirming his faith to say, you have passed through the right door. Listen, there's not anybody here that controls the door into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ most assuredly is the door. And we either choose that door or we deny that door. But nobody controls that door. And Jesus made it real simple and real clear. I'd like for you to look again there at John 10 and verse 9. Notice where he says, I am the door, period. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's a simple sentence. I am the door, period. Look with me, if you will, in Matthew, the seventh chapter, in verse 13. And as you're turning there, I'd like to ask you, what do doors do? Doors give us entrance. And once they give us entrance, we have left one thing and we have passed into another. For example, if you were in the foyer this morning, you passed through a door and that gave you entrance into this auditorium. Doors give us passageways. Passageways always lead to something. Now, I'd like for you to think about what Jesus said in Matthew, the seventh chapter. If you have your Bibles open there in verse 13, 
19, notice he talked about that narrow gate. In other words, that gate is a door. It's an entranceway. And he says, I want you to enter in by it. But then he says, for there's another gate. Wide is the gate. And then he talked about a way that led to that gate. And he says, broad is the way that leads. They always lead somewhere. Where's this one lead? To destruction. How many are going to go there? He says, there are going to be many who go in by it. But then he goes back to that narrow. And look in verse 14. Narrow is the gate. And I want you to capitalize on this this morning. And difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. There's this gate so wide and the way that's leading up to it is so broad, you don't even have to try to stay on that path. There is another gate that is so narrow and the way that's leading to it is so difficult that very few people are willing to make that kind of sacrifice we can talk all day long about how the way through Jesus Christ is the best way to live. It brings the most reward. We find our purpose in life. We could list the blessings almost endlessly, but we also need to say the other side of that coin that Jesus also tells us. It's going to be full of suffering. It's going to be full of pain. It's going to be full of sacrifice. It is going to be a difficult road, and the minority will always be on that road. The majority will always be on the other. Listen, if you're going to school or you're going to work and your way has always been to kind of walk with the majority, you're not on the road to heaven. And if for you being a Christian has always just been pretty easy and it really hasn't cost you much and you just think you're naturally that good, you're not on the road to heaven. The one who has never spoke a mistruth said the road to heaven was difficult. It's a narrow gate to enter into it. A lot of self-crucifying every day, crucifying self-will to live God's will. What we like to do in our minds, if you want to be going over just a few pages to Matthew, the 12th chapter, what we like to do in our minds is we like to paint this image that, that there's another door. You know, Jesus just said that there was a wide one and there was narrow. We like to paint some kind of picture in our mind like you can kind of keep one foot in the door with Christ and you can kind of keep one foot in the door with the world and some days of the week you pass through this door and other days of the week you live out here and I need to recognize in Revelation, the third chapter, and verse 16, the people of Laodicea were doing that. And he said, you're neither cold nor hot. He says, you're lukewarm. And he says, God will vomit you out of his mouth. He would rather us be completely cold than to be lukewarm. And, and here we get another glimpse of that same principle in Matthew 12 and 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Listen, there's no medium ground. We are either 100% with the Lord or we're not with him. 
And so when we think about how, how is our life going to be, our life is going to be full of a, a difficult way. Can, can we have this lukewarmness? No, that's what's been hurting the cause of Christ far more than those who are avid atheists. Listen, atheism is not hurting the cause of Christ. It's lukewarm Christians. The people that have never claimed any belief in Christ in this community have not hurt the cause of Christ more than others that have filled the pews right here and then they've gone to work to not live an honest life of integrity. She's flirting with her boss and they're both married to other people. He's lying on expense reports and he has little integrity if there's profit involved. She goes to school and she cheats. He goes to parties every weekend. And yet, they also talk about loving mission trips. They also talk about how they love a good singing on Sunday night. And the Lord says, I'd rather you be an atheist. There's only one door and it's Jesus Christ and it is not for those that are looking for an easy path and aren't willing to be fully committed. You may think you're on that road and God said, I've already vomited you out. You don't know yet that you're out, but you're out. Jesus controls the entrance. Nobody here bargains their way in. Nobody here says, well, I've changed it a little. Maybe it says that in the scriptures, but I've conformed the scriptures to me. Jesus is the door. Let's go back again to that text. I'd like you to see John 10 verse 9 again. I'd like for you to see that Jesus says, I am the door. The makes it exclusive. There's not an option of doors. Choose which door you want. You want to approach the Father through Judaism? That's, that's a door right there. Go through it. You want to approach Him through Buddhist? Pass through it. You, we're, we're all just serving a higher power. You want, you want to reach Him through Hinduism? Pass through it. You want to reach Him through atheism? Pass through it. You want to just believe in a higher power? You want some other kind of Eastern religion? You, you just find the way to whoever you call God and, and you just pick a door. And Jesus Christ said, I am the door. Oprah Winfrey, when she was probably one of the most influential women and even people in America, several years ago, when this would still happen in America, it probably wouldn't happen today. She was talking on her television show about how to reach God. And she began to speak things like this. One of the mistakes human beings make is believing that there's only one way to live and we don't accept that. And she continued to talk about there's a higher power and there's many ways to reach him. And back in that day and time, the audience was still full of many Christians. Don't pause there because there are a lot of people today that call themselves Christians that do not believe that Jesus is the only way. And so one of the ladies stood up. There was a mic there for her to speak in and she says... To Oprah, Jesus 
is the way to the Father. And Oprah's response is, what about Jesus? And another lady sitting beside this lady leans over into the microphone and says, there is only one way and only one way, and that is through Jesus to the Father. To which Oprah responded, there couldn't possibly be just one way. We should have seen what was coming back a little over a decade ago when that started being the sentiments that were expressed among people who had called themselves Christians or even still called themselves Christians. You've probably seen bumper stickers for Coexist. You probably know that, that within that word coexist is a representation or, or, of, of Islam and Wicca and science and Judaism, Buddhism, Taoism and Christianity. And the idea behind this organization is for us all to be able to live together peacefully and for there not uh, to be hatred toward each other and that there would be uh, a, a work of unity. And Christians ought to be willing to lead that movement. The second greatest commandment is love your neighbors yourself. We're supposed to turn the other cheek. We're, we're not to spread the gospel through the sword. And, and any Christians that have believed, such as the Crusaders, they did not get that from the teachings of Christianity. So even though the ends may sound good, the, the ends are not justified by the means. When you go to their home website, I'd like for you to notice what is quoted there. It's statements like this. God has given us many faiths. Let that sink in for a moment. God has given us many faiths, but only one world in which to coexist. May your work help all of us to cherish our commonalities and feel enlarged by our differences. Friends, God has not given us many faiths. As a matter of fact, he made it very clear. There is one way to the Father. John 14 and 6, he said, now I want you to listen to all of the, the ways that this is emphasized that it is singular. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, if that's not clear enough, he says, no man comes to the Father except by me. You probably already know this, but I feel compelled to emphasize this to you this morning. You work around and live around and go to school around a lot of, quote, mainline Christians that do not believe Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. I don't know if you realize that yet, but this is becoming very, very few in the Christian faith. You can read example after example after example of mainline Christian leaders that will make statements like this. He quotes John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then this leader says, the first thing I want you to explore with me is this. I simply refuse to hold the doctrine that there is no access to God except through Jesus. I personally reject the claim that Christianity has the truth and all other religions are in error. I think it is a mistaken view to say Christianity is superior to Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Judaism, and that Christ is the only way to God and to salvation. Now, isn't it interesting what he first did was quoted direct scripture and the very thing he did coming out of that scripture was say, I refuse to agree with this. 
I do not believe that. That alone is serious business. But then number two, what I'd like for you to note is what he said at the end, that Christianity is superior, would be very arrogant if it was a human being saying that. If it was you and I saying that, we could say, what makes you think you're so good? Friends, we didn't say it. All we do is we approach the door, the one who said it, and we choose to believe that he meant what he said and it's true and we pass through or we don't. We have to decide this morning, do I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord or as C.S. Lewis emphasized years ago or do you really think he was the biggest liar to ever walk the face of this earth? Listen, you can't play the game. I don't believe he's the only way, but I believe he was a great man. I believe that he's a great teacher and I believe that he's one of the ways. No, you can't play that game. He was either the biggest liar to ever live or he is Lord. Because everything about his ministry was to tell people that he was the way to the Father, that he was the Savior, he was the Messiah, he was the one that is God on earth. He is the only way. So was he a liar? Oprah said he was. Judaism today still says that he is. The Messiah still hadn't come. He said he was the Messiah. Mohammed said he was a liar. All he would give Jesus is the fact that he was a good prophet and teacher. Good prophets and good teachers don't lie. Or what about this? If he wasn't a liar, maybe he's just a lunatic. You're crazy when you claim to be somebody you're not. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the only way to the Father. Now, was he Lord or was he a lunatic? I'm not trying to be cute when I say this. I'm just trying to emphasize it. If you came up to me this morning and you said, hey, I, I want to meet you. And I said, I'm a 95-year-old granny. And I'm walking on my cane. And you say, oh, that's cute. David's trying to be funny. But yet I never broke character. I said, just call me Sister Shannon. And by the night, you wouldn't think that's so funny. You think, what's wrong with him? You see me Monday and I'm still a 95-year-old granny. And you say, he's not a 95-year-old. You know what? It wouldn't take the Monday morning until somebody here would be saying, we've got to get him checked into some kind of ward somewhere. You know why? People are lunatics who claim to be somebody they're not. Jesus Christ would have been the biggest lunatic that ever lived to claim that he was the son of God. God incarnated the only way to the Father. Oh, I don't believe that, but I tell you, he was a good man. No, he was a lunatic if he's not the only way to the Father. He's either a liar, the biggest that's ever lived. He's a lunatic, the most craziest that's ever lived. He even died for the lunatic cause. Or... He was Lord. The Lord who said, I am the only way to the Father. You can't pass through that door and also claim that there are other ways to the Father. Not because of who you are or what you believe or don't believe, but because of what is fact. Jesus is Lord. He is the door. And He said, I'm the Savior. I'm the way to the Father. This month, we're placing an emphasis on souls as it has to do with saving souls. I know it can't get any more basic than what you've just heard, but brethren, I want you to listen to the words of Jesus Christ when he said, I am the door. If we are going to take salvation to the world, we can't give an inch on what Jesus says. It's not us, it's Jesus who said, I am the door.
And then his next words, and we extend the invitation with this. If anyone, anyone enters by me, he can come in and out and he can find pasture. He can be saved. The door is exclusive. But the invitation is open to everyone. If anyone. It doesn't matter what your last name is or what continent you were born on or what your past sins have been or what you've believed in the past, what your religion's been. It doesn't matter. What the Lord wants to know is who are you today? Who are you willing to serve today? This morning, we're about to sing a song of encouragement. And if you know who Jesus is and you know that he's the only way to the Father and you've not passed through that door, what does it say about you? Is your life a lie? You say, I believe he's the only way, but yet I'm not going to live it. Are you a lunatic? Are you willing to be a servant and let him be your Lord? Listen, we're talking about serious stuff. We're talking about your soul. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about God coming to earth. This morning, if you've been with the Lord, but yet you've left the Lord, isn't it wonderful that the door still swings open and the Lord is still saying, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, but notice it's come to me. Will you pass through the door? Listen, we have one of the greatest gifts. It is the greatest gift that's ever been offered to mankind and the gift is open. The door is there. We simply have to choose him or deny him. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. But let me say this as we close. If what's been said this morning, you think to yourself, I've never heard anything like that. We understand that. There are billions of people on this earth that have never heard what we've just heard from God's word. We'd love to sit down and show you how this really is the word of God. We'd love to sit down and see why we can trust God, why we can trust the Messiah, and why he's such a blessing in our lives. So if after services today, you want to get a time to sit down and study, we would love to do that with you. It's not about any of us here, but it's about the door and how blessed our life is when we pass through him.